Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I've got a couple of interactive parts to the sermon today. They're not highly interactive, so don't get to- totally excited. But uh, first is a question. <clears throat> Does anybody know what Jeremiah 29.11 says? I was pretty sure somebody know. For I know the plans I have for you. Um, I actually have it on the on the screen. We can put that up there. Ben knows what it says because he's looking right at it. The reason people know this verse is because it's often quoted. It's often put on uh, things you can buy for your house. I looked online and like tons of people on Etsy like put it onto stuff and then sell it to you. Um, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. And not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And it's clear why that would be popular. An exciting verse for people to like. Because those are good things that we would like to think God is doing on our behalf. And on behalf of those we love. That he knows what he's doing. That he has plans for us. And those plans are good, right? I mean, that's pretty much what that verse says. Those plans are to prosper us, not to harm us. And we're good Americans and we like to prosper. So that sounds like a really good verse. What's the context of this verse? Because one of the things that is important is a text without a context is a pretext. You can make anything, not just in Scripture, but you can make anything that a, a, a person says or writes mean anything you want it to mean if you take it out of the context. What's the context of this verse? Well, Jeremiah, the prophet, was a prophet that lived during the time of the exile of the Israelites. He actually lived before the exile, and he was busy prophesying, hey, you're going to get exiled. It's going to be horrible. They're going to burn down the temple. Terrible things are going to happen. You're going to be taken into exile. And then he lived during the exile time for a spell, and he ministered to the people in Israel during the book of Lamentations, if you remember. And he wrote a letter to the exiles who were in Babylon. And we're reading part of that letter as we look at this. In fact, verse 10, right before verse 11, says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. That's the context of I have plans for you. But did you notice how long the time frame is? 70 years. How many of you expect to live another 70 years? Rex, awesome. Yeah, uh, for me, 70 years from now, right? I'm terrible at math, so let me think about it really quick in my head. I will be 118 years old, 70 years from now. Am I part of those folks that would get to go back home to Israel? My son, Sam, our oldest, is, how old are you, Sam? 19. Right? How old will Sam be in 70 years? Would Sam get to go back to Israel? I mean, perhaps. However, his granddads died in their late 70s. I mean, it's not a for sure thing. Right? 
70 years is a long time. So the plans that God had for these folks that he says, I have plans not to harm you, but to prosper you and to bless you. He's not talking to any of them as, and by the way, you guys are the ones that get to go back to the promised land. What could his plans be for them? His plans, as we learn elsewhere in the book, are that build homes, give your daughters in marriage, follow me, you're going to be here a long time. (laughs) Pray for the prosperity of Babylon. Now, none of us, knowing the context of that verse, would necessarily want to put that on a coffee mug in the morning, probably. Because we'd be like, well, wait a minute, the prosperity is for those 70 years from now to go back to Israel. It's not for me, because I'm too old for that. And we want to claim this verse, and we want it to mean something to us. And by the way, it's okay to do that, but just remember the context it's in. Because many times we claim, or we name, or we look at these promises of God, and we believe he's now on the hook to bless us, to prosper us, because he's got great plans for us. We're going to look at a guy that Jesus had plans for. The way I know that is because Jesus had plans for him. It's in the Bible. We're going to look at the story. It's the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11 today. And the reason we're going to look at this is, once again, we're in this series. It's called Failing Faith. And one of the struggles that at least I have, and I don't know about you, but there's times that bad stuff happens to me or to friends of mine or to my family or to just the world in general, there's terrible things that happen and they cause me to wonder, is my faith a fraud or is God a fraud? It causes me to wrestle with if there is an all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, all-caring God who can do something about this, why doesn't he? And if he doesn't do something, then does he exist? Or is my faith wrong? He's not really all-powerful. He's not really all-loving. He really doesn't care. (laughs) Maybe he's more like how many of the founding fathers saw him, that they were deists, and they saw God had built the earth like a clockmaker and wound up the clock, and then he left. And he didn't interact on a regular basis with his creation. And that's a good explanation for some of the stuff we see around here. Maybe he just left the building. But that's not what the scriptures teach. And the scriptures do have resources for us when we wrestle with, is God a fraud or is our faith a fraud? Let me suggest to you, whenever we think God is a fraud, it's probably our faith that's the fraud. If you ever find yourself going, God's a fraud. God doesn't know what he's up to. God is messing up. God isn't getting this right. It's probably you that needs the correction. Now, I'm saying that not as a person who's had a, such a wonderfully blessed life that I don't know some of the things that people run into. I'm talking and speaking from the, a life of pain and suffering and sorrow. And the longer I'm alive, the more pain and suffering and sorrow I experience. And so John 11. John 11 is a very interesting story. And perhaps you heard it in Sunday school when you were a kiddo, uh, if you spent any time growing up in church. Let me just read John 11, uh, 1, and I'll make comment as, as we go along. Now, a man named Lazarus 
was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. John wants to make sure that you know Jesus loves this guy. There's a reason for it later. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And then he wants us to be reminded again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he hurried off to be with them so that he could heal Lazarus. He loves them, right? Have you ever received a phone call about somebody who you love who is sick? They're not expected to make it? What's your response? How do you respond to that news? If you have the ability, if you're close enough, if you have the time, even if you don't have the time right at that moment, if you can make the time later in the day, maybe when you get off work or maybe when you're back in town or whatever that looks like, don't we try to get to that person? Don't we? I've been to the hospital a lot of times to see some of you even. And I've noticed the pattern. <laughs> when people are sick, their friends, their family come to be with them. It says Jesus loved him. Twice. Keep that in mind. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Okay, so now we're getting some backstory. Maybe they didn't want to go because Jesus almost got killed last time they were there. I mean, the disciples didn't say, why aren't you going to hang out with Lazarus? They're probably thinking, good choice, Jesus, because last time we were there, people tried to kill us. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will see, they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now, the next character, this is doubting Thomas. And I want to point out that he gets a really bum rap. For look at what Thomas says here. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, or for all of us, doubting. I mean, that's not what Didymus means, but when we think of Thomas, we think doubting Thomas. Said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, Thomas wasn't 
he's got a bum rap. He's kind of more of a tough guy than he is a doubter, it sounds to me. Now, Jesus, isn't it interesting, finds out that Lazarus, whom he loves, is dying, and he tarries for two more days where he's at. And now they're going to spend a day traveling to to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. He's late. He's not like a little late. He's like a lot late. He actually knows he's a lot late. He told the disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there. So you'll believe. And he didn't even say that till two days later. Now, one thing that I find very interesting in this story, and one thing that I think is really helpful and good for all of us who try to follow Jesus, is that the Holy Spirit decided that this is good Bible. Print it. See, some of you need to circle, highlight, underline this idea that Jesus stayed two days. Jesus let somebody be in the tomb four days. That Jesus was late. Or was he? Whose perspective are we talking about here? Whose perspective of of lateness are we talking about? Do you remember the Lord of the Rings? And Gandalf, he gets scolded by Frodo at the very beginning of the book uh, because Gandalf is showing up with fireworks. And who doesn't want some good fireworks at their 111th birthday or however old Bilbo is? And he says, you're late. And Gandalf, the wizard, says, a wizard is never late. He always arrives when he means to. Jesus, he's kind of like a wizard, right? I mean, he's probably not late. He's arriving when he means to. Now listen to what the sisters have to say about this. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here. Ugh. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that a statement of faith? Is she expressing faith in Christ in that statement? Absolutely. She's basically saying, had you been here, he wouldn't have died. I've seen you heal the blind. I've seen you heal the deaf. I've seen you. He's actually raised a couple of people from the dead prior to this. And she says, I know the stories about you. I myself have witnessed your miracles. And I know that if you had been here, this disease was not out of your ability. You could have done something. This is a statement of faith. A statement of doubt would have sounded like this. A statement of doubt would have sounded, you know, it doesn't matter. Had you been here or not, he, he was, it was his time. He was going to die. There was nothing that could be done. We're glad you're here now. But she doesn't believe that's true. She believes that if Jesus had been there, something would have been done. That's why they got a hold of him in the first place. That's why they made a phone call to him.
Jesus said to her, well, and then she goes, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Lots more faith, tons of faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. And even though they die, and whenever, oh, excuse me, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? After she had said this, or excuse me, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and in his asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, the problem's not agreement amongst the believers, right? They both agree for the same thing. They both have faith. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had gone along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, here's the other interactive part of the sermon. Does anybody here own a horse or is around horses ever? Nobody? Some people? Okay. I have, I've not been around horses much, mostly because they scare me. Um, and I have this effect on them where apparently they can smell fear or something. I don't know. I learned that in a Hollywood movie. It's probably not true. But anyways, do horses ever snort? Do they do that just for fun? When, do, when does a horse snort? Sorry? When does a horse snort? In the morning. <laughs> it's a warning. Okay, in the morning, it's a warning. Is it a warning when a horse snorts? Is it, I mean, it can be probably for a number of things, but they just snort because they got big nostrils. But don't, does not a horse snort when it's kind of angry too? I mean, they can, it's a way to get attention of other horses or the rider or whomever. The reason I bring that up is because the Greek word here that is translated in your Bible where it says uh, Jesus was, let me find it here. Lost my place. Where it says, Jesus saw her weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The Greek word for that phrase is this word, eprobimomai. And it means to snort with anger as a horse. Now, I'm not suggesting Jesus snorted, okay? It's not at all what I'm saying. Please don't mishear me. The only two places that this, there's actually this, this word occurs five times in the New Testament. And the other places it occurs, it's when Jesus heals some blind guys and he warns them with the snort of a horse not to go tell others what had happened. It's a stern warning, it's a, but it's tinged with some anger. 
Okay? So parents, if you've ever had to warn your child with some you know, strength behind it and maybe a tinge of anger, you have felt this feeling. The other time it occurs is when Jesus, once again, is warning somebody not to share what he's done for them. And the other time it occurs is in verse 38, just a few verses later. This is what, verse 32, that this occurs. 33. What's going on here? Why that word? Why that feeling? Why does the English Bible render it so poorly? I mean, did you hear the difference between snorting like a horse with a tinge of anger and and warning versus... He was moved in his spirit. I mean, he was moved. It's a different moving. Right? Because the moving I'm experiencing when I read this story is like how I feel when somebody I love or care about or know, when they are weeping and they're moved to tears to weep over and grieve a loved one, then I am moved to weep and grieve with them. But that's not the feeling that Jesus is feeling here. They've got Greek words for that feeling. That's not the word that's used. It's the horse snorting and anger word that's used. It's the warning people with a a hint of anger and frustration in it word that's used. And did you notice why he feels this? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Why did he feel this? Because he's looking at the others around him. He is looking at death and what it does to this world. He is looking at the pain and the sorrow and the grief. And he can do something about it. He does not feel powerless like we do. He does not just grieve and go, this is horrible. I wish I had been here. Why wasn't I here sooner? I wish somebody could just make this go away. He has none of those feelings. His feeling is one of indignation. His feeling of, is one of anger. His feeling is warlike. Why would that be his feeling? Because he knows how to win this war. He knows what it will take to defeat death. He knows that's why he's here. Now you're going to get a precursor of why he's here in the rest of this story. I've always found it weird that Jesus weeps. I've always found it weird that he weeps here because I'm like, you're going to take care of it. Jesus, who knows everything's going to be okay. Jesus, who knows Lazarus is about to come forth out of the grave. Jesus, who knows that in the sweet by and by, everybody's going to be reunited. All sad things are going to be made well. All bad things are going to be made good. Jesus knows the entire story, and he still weeps. And some say, oh, it's because he's just real compassionate. And I, yeah, that's probably part of it. 
And some say, this just shows the humanity of Jesus. And yeah, that's probably part of it. But you're not paying attention to that Greek word, snorting like an angry horse. I think, and I unfortunately haven't, this is why preaching the Old Testament irritates me sometimes. Because, or excuse me, New Testament. I really like preaching the Old Testament. I had a professor, his name was Craig Blomberg, and, and the guy, I can't, I can't say anything bad about the man because he's super smart, and he knows tons of things. And when we sat in his class on Greek exegesis, which we laughed about that because it was like exit Jesus, you know, <laughs> taking Greek. But anyways, when we sat in his class, he often said, if you come up with a novel interpretation of the New Testament, you're probably wrong. And that killed a creative, kind of free-spirited person like me with being interested in the New Testament. Because I'm like, well, if it's all been figured out, then why do I need to bother? He said, if you can't find a scholar, an article that agrees with your interpretation, you're probably wrong. I warn you now, because I haven't found a scholar or an article that agrees with my interpretation on this. And people that are way smarter than me have told me that I'm probably wrong when I can't find that. But I think I'm right. You see, this word here has baffled scholars. They want to tone it down. They feel like, why would Jesus be angry? Why would he be upset? They want to make Jesus nicer. They want to, they want to make Jesus you know, the guy who sit around with lambs on his lap all day long. They want to make Jesus like the, 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 the little precious moments figurine Jesus. Okay? Even when he weeps, they want him to be like a little boy with a teddy bear and a blankie. And, oh, this is so sad. But that's not the picture. It's Jesus. Weeping in anger because he can do something about this. And he knows the cost of doing something about this. In fact, in the book of John, this next action of Christ's is what leads to his death. In the book of John, this is how John sets this up. Because as soon as this is over, look at the heading for the next part of scripture. It says, the plot to kill Jesus. And a few chapters later, he's gone. John is setting it up that this is what kicks off that conflict. That brings it to a head. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? (laughs) In other words, he's late. Have you ever been there? Have you ever uttered words like that verse out of your mouth? And if you have, 
You're in super, awesome, excellent, good company. That is not a bad feeling to feel. That is not something that you need to go, oh, I'm thinking thoughts that I shouldn't think as a good Christian. I can't think those thoughts. Those people thought it. The Holy Spirit said, that's good Bible. Print it. Because 2,000 years from now, there's going to be people that need to circle, highlight, underline that, that says, he who, he who healed the blind, couldn't you keep this, this man from dying? It's our problem. It's our problem right here in the text. It's the problem. If he's a good God, a loving God, a kind God, a powerful God, couldn't he? Wouldn't he? It's so easy to go from wouldn't he to why wouldn't he? It's very easy to go from that to why didn't he? And it's those feelings, those emotions that are all in this story that we just so quickly read through and we don't live in it and we don't see and we don't feel. And we see people who go, Jesus, you're late. You didn't get here on time. Surely you could have taken care of Lazarus sniffles because I've seen you heal blind people. But sometimes we suffer. And even though God could immediately fix the situation, he doesn't. And it appears to me that Jesus gives us the answer in the story why he doesn't fix it. Why, from our perspective, he shows up late. Did you hear what he said to the disciples earlier? I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. He earlier says, No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. You see, when Jesus doesn't act in the way we think he should, when Jesus shows up late, when he can do something to fix our suffering now immediately and doesn't, the one truth that we can hang on to is this, that our suffering, our pain is not random. That there is a purpose in it. And that purpose is God's glory. Now, man, that can sound so trite and so shallow and can sound so, so be happy and buck up and it's going to be okay. It's all for God's glory. And I'm not saying that at all. And you don't need to hear that at all. They were weeping. He was gone. He was lost. The story goes on and Jesus calls out Lazarus from the grave and Yay, he's alive again. This is the only place in Scripture Lazarus is mentioned. But do you know what else happened to Lazarus after he rose again from the dead? He died again. That's kind of a bummer. He had to go through that again. His family had to go through mourning again. And by the way, that time that it happened, Jesus wasn't around to call. Because a few chapters later, Christ is taken to Golgotha and he is crucified. 
And they do a good job of making sure he's dead. And they bury him. And that time that Lazarus dies, Jesus is not physically present. They can't send word to him. They can't have him show up. But the thing that Jesus did when he died was he pulled off Easter three days later. And see, this is where what happens to us in this life is most demonstrated that it can't possibly be random, that it is all for God's glory because this isn't our only life. If this was it, if this was our only life, then yeah, God's on the hook. There's all sorts of problems. There's all sorts of unanswered evil. There are all sorts of horrible, terrible tragedies that befall us. And there is no hope. If this is the only life, if you are an atheist, my goodness, your faith is amazing. Because if you can go through this life as an atheist, thinking that at the end we're just, we no longer exist. What amazing, horrific courage that must take. But the gospel says that all wrongs will be made right someday. That Christ will work all things for God's glory someday. During the Holocaust, there was a man, Eli Wiesel, and he wrote uh, quite a bit about the Holocaust and He was a Jewish survivor of it, and he wrote a prayer towards the end of his life. It was published in the New York Times, October 2nd, 1997, and he was in the midst of trying to reevaluate his feelings about God. Why would you let such horrible things happen? He says, Auschwitz must and will forever remain a question mark only. It can be conceived neither with God nor without God. At one point, I began wondering whether I was not unfair with you, the word they use are towards God. After all, Auschwitz was not something that came down ready-made from heaven. It was not conceived by men, implemented by men, staffed by men. Excuse me, it was conceived by men, implemented by men, staffed by men. And their aim was to destroy not only us, but you as well. Ought we not to think of your pain too? Watching your children suffer at the hands of your other children, haven't you also suffered? You see, God in the midst of our pain and suffering is suffering as well. There's a passage in scripture, 2 Peter 3.8, and it says, a thousand days are like a day to the Lord, and a day is like a thousand years, or excuse me, a thousand years are like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. And so from God's perspective, he lives in a different experience of time. And so when a life is cut short by a decade or two or three or 70, from his perspective, it's but mere hours. And yet, the converse is true. 
If a day is like a thousand years, then he feels and lives in those times of suffering and tragedy and pain far greater and far longer and far deeper than any of us do. And I think in that, we can take hope. We can, we can believe that he suffers with us. You know, I know that um, the resources for answering this question, is my faith a fraud or is God a fraud? I don't doubt we have good resources, but I know at the end of the day, we don't have like, we don't have those, you know, weather tight, beyond a shadow of a doubt kinds of resources. There are things that happen in our lives, in our community, that God just doesn't come up and say, here's why. It doesn't end up with a nice little shiny bow on it, like, you know, the story of Joseph. What you intended for good, for evil, God used for good. He doesn't come up to us during this life and give us the behind the scenes answer. And as much as I'd like him to, and as much as I'd like him to share that with me or somebody behind the scenes, here's what's happening. This is why it'll work for good. And this is why you need to just keep pressing forward. At the end of the day, I feel, and I hope you feel this too, he's given us enough. Maybe he hasn't satisfied every question, but he's given me enough. He's given me enough to have hope, to trudge forward, to press on. You see this word here, this word that has anger and rage and snort in it. I think that's the key. Because every horrible, terrible thing that happens, every tragedy that happens in this world, that's the feeling that Christ has. That something must be done. And thank God, he did something. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these interesting stories you give us. And Lord, we pray that as we wrestle through your word, and many of us wrestle with you through our suffering and our pain, we thank you that you allow your kids to wrestle with you. You allow us to try to figure things out and you give us just enough hints to keep pressing into you and moving towards you and moving forward. And thank you that Lazarus' death was so irritating to Christ, so enraging to him that he fixed that situation temporarily and then he went on to his own death and he permanently dealt the death blow to death. Father, I pray that each of us here would place our hope in Christ and Him. That we would place our hope 
in Christ, that we would, we would come to you with our doubts and our, our failings, that we would trust him to forgive us of our sins, to defeat the powers that are so powerful in our lives, and ultimately to defeat death. We trust you, Lord Christ, to do this work. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Thank God he did something. Amen.